0: RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio. Wednesday morning at Reality Check Radio is Legal Hub Morning. This is where we look at some of the cases that are out and about with Nick Kearney and Katie Ashby-Coppins. Nick joins us from Athens, Greece. Nick, with your Superman shirt on.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, Athens. Um, sitting inside a quite a very comfortable um, Airbnb in a very kind of trendy part of downtown Athens, I must say.
0: You're looking sun-kissed. You've been in the Greek islands.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I've just spent a week or eight days in Paros and then Santorini. So, yeah, uh, magical place, places, I should say. Uh, But you want to go to Santorini with, um, you know, uh, having spoken to your bank manager first. Okay, that's a good heads up.
0: All right, well, you're coming in loud and clear. And Katie, are you in um, the West Wing again?
2: No, not quite, slightly different today. Um, I have just been with my um, uh, goddaughter for the evening. Oh, lovely. Morning. All right.
0: Um, Never a shortage of cases to talk about or legal principles or debates or whatever you want to call them. Let's go through the list. We've got uh, five topics here and start with this one. It's a very good question. Who is responsible for my children when they are at school? Hmm. Simple so, question. Um, is it a simple answer?
2: Well, no, it's, it's pretty simple, but um, there's a few things happening of late, which I don't think that the rules have necessarily caught up on. And um, it's, a, it's an interesting um, conundrum. But there's been a lot going on in schools um, at the moment. So um, when your child is at school, they are in the care of the school and the school is responsible for them. So that's teacher, board of trustees and um, the other staff at the school. Um, your child is not allowed to leave school um, or the care of the school grounds without your consent. Um, so right. that's really important too. And um, consent, if it is to be given, needs to be in writing. Um, and failure to do so could uh, 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 give rise to a complaint to the Ministry of Education. Um, so you've got your uh, structures, board of trustees, principal, teachers and other staff. Um, And then there are legal requirements, codes of conduct and responsibilities that um, overlay a teacher or school's responsibility for caring for your child um, while they are in their custody, essentially. Um, Custody, just a generic term, not custody as in officially. Um, So a teacher's legal duty is to supervise students in the same way that a sensible, careful parent would do in similar circumstances and... um, the The codes and the um, code of professional responsibilities and the standards for teaching profession in New Zealand set out the specific rules that are required to be complied with. So that's really my go-to when I'm I'm assessing a situation where we've got an issue with a school um, or a teacher.
0: Does it mean that teachers can do and say things that a parent would at home, given they have this custodial role? They can't sort of like be substitute parents. They're, they're, they're just looking after.
2: Correct, correct. Right. Yeah. They're caring for the child um, to the same level as a, a, a reasonable, cautious parent would be. Um, and those rules clearly set up that they've got duties and responsibilities. Teachers have a really influential role in, in children's lives. Um, and so it's important that um, they uphold their duties, both ethical and legal, um, in caring for the children.
0: You said that, um, you know, things are catching up or something like that or, or there's probably been a bit of movement in the way things are operating in schools since those principles. But And I'm not talking about the school principal. but what about ideology? Can yeah, look- ideology be projected to children in the same way, let's say, as they it could be at home? Uh,
2: look, this is where it is coming it is interesting because we're seeing a situation where some of the schools are taking um, uh, responsibilities into their hands and not even letting parents know um, about uh, certain situations that are arising and that really is quite incredible because it doesn't appear that the codes or or rules have caught up with that situation Um, and I'm not sure if it's being done under the guise of um, uh, safety for the children but doing things without parents uh, knowledge and involvement I think is uh goes to the heart of a breakdown in the relationship and responsibilities that a teacher or school has to a student. Unless of course they're being beaten or, or something um of, of that um you know they're being physically harmed but then there's um you know a, another government department that would get involved there and that would probably be first complaint to the police and um Oranga Tamariki um or SIFs. And you know that that's when you could see uh, the need to uh, do something without necessarily a parent knowing. Um, yeah. If if, could, if it could lead to the danger of the child, I don't know whether there's some mental gymnastics or some um, contortion going on to suggest that uh, parents not encouraging of uh, certain ideological views means that the school has a ability to step in. I would say that they don't. Um,
0: well, we we hear anecdotally that that does happen, and that's clearly at minimum an overreach, sure, correct,
2: correct, yeah, yeah, they're not the parent,
0: yeah, so there's some catch up go. to sorry, make, is there there's some oh, catch I've, I've, up to take place, right?
2: Yes, correct, um, and I think that if parents are found in this situation, um, then they could take things up with the schools um, and/or teachers and/or counsellors, and, or counselors, um, and uh, really um, ha- have something to say and and be on the right of um, on the right side of law, and that the law still supports a parent, um, you know, having being able to make medical decisions for children and the like.
1: Sorry, Nick, you're about to say. Oh, I was just going to say that. One of the of course, um, major problems with this sort of or well, these sorts of issues is the fact that schools uh, are um, verticoms owned by the government, right? So the and the and the rules that they have are set by the Ministry of Education and bureaucrats there and ordered ordered from above by politicians. So some of these, you know, um, issues of um, you know, we talk about with ideology and bits and pieces you've just mentioned um, that come from sort of higher above if that's the way to put it, which is, I think we're seeing what we're certainly seeing in New Zealand anyway, and the numbers show it just anecdotally, uh, a lot more applications now for homeschooling um, a, a, as a result. I think that'll just get even even worse. Um, I'm involved in a um, in high school uh, in Auckland, one of my my um, old boy of, uh, of a high school, and I get involved there quite a bit. I'm on the um, board of a charitable trust that raises money for the school and helps the, um, the school out. And, uh, you know, we had a, um, a session with uh, the principal and others um, late last year, and one of the big issues um, was, was this, is exactly this, the policies that the school is allowed and wants to set but isn't really, well, wants to set but isn't really allowed to set. Um, you know, we've seen many cases as well of um uh, the schools, for example, saying, Well, if you know, if your child wants to come here, um, these are the rules that the child must obey: here above the shoulder, no tattoos, no ear piercings from boys or whatever. And you know, um, kind of parents saying, Well, my boy's got long hair, he's got a tattoo, and he's got an ear pierce, and, and he's in the zone and he's entitled to go to the school and he's going to the bloody school, and and they take. You know, they take cases against the school and the ministry for discrimination and bits and pieces so they're very they're very uh interesting and complex issues um some of these um personal rights and freedoms versus you know the rules that a school is entitled to set um uh, because at the end of the day if, if you're a parent and you sign something your child up to a school you're kind of entering into a contract with that school right you're saying well can my you know, boy or girl go to the school? Yes, but here are the rules. Um, but you, you're forced to actually, as a parent, in, in, in an awkward situation because of zoning. You really have no choice in some instances because of zoning to send your child to a particular school. Um, and the school says, well, these are the rules. I don't like those rules. Well, what can you do about it?
0: Okay. Well, you can't undo, well, I suppose you can undo the tattoo. You can certainly cut the hair. You can take the piercings out.
1: <laughs> yeah sure
0: yeah rock a hard place potentially
1: yeah well as i say i think that um we are seeing more um more evidence of parents taking the children out of school and homeschooling them um and i think you know anecdotally that's that's what's happening here in new zealand anyway
2: Mm, it is certainly happening but you know the other the flip side of it is is actually being active as you've as you've suggested nick and being involved in the board making sure you're going to board meetings um and you know the government gets a lot of tax money to run schools uh to educate our children um you know taking them out not everyone can take them out to homeschool them but they can get more involved and um actively participate um and you know it, it starts at from the ground up and the culture of of, of the Board of Trustees and, and the school.
1: 100% it does, exactly, yeah. And, you know, the, school, the example I just spoke about, um, they were sort of, they had a vexed issue of, dare we say it, um, trans-neutral toilets, right? And this was a same-sex school, as a boys' school, I won't name the school. Um, and, you know, I asked, I think someone around the table, well, how many sort of transgender or non-binary well, I don't know what they a call you know sort of boys here uh the school had over 2,000 students and there were a couple he said a couple and you know they have to change all the rules just to try and appease if that's the word or help uh, a couple of a couple of students so it's um yeah it's very tricky issues uh, to be honest I wouldn't want to be you know I'm thankful my daughter's 22 and out of that system now same they've all they've all been through it Missed
0: all of that. So used to be so simple.
1: Yeah. Life is pretty simple, I think. If you Yeah. No wonder people want that back. (laughs) Mm.
0: Okay. And the other thing is too, when it comes to um personal spaces, when you when you're doing your personal business, I mean a bit of modesty and decorum and privacy is it's a default, isn't it? You know open toilets and sharing this and sharing that. There's got to be some private spaces, I would have thought, anyway. But that's yeah. just me, old-fashioned. Are we done with this particular issue? Should we move on?
2: Sure.
0: Canadian discrimination case. What's all this about?
1: You know, this involves a school as well, actually, funnily oh. enough. And it came from the Canadian Supreme Court, which is, you know, it's uh, the highest court in the land. And uh, the basic situation is around about I think 2015 or 16, somewhere around there. um, The the school involved was forced to put policies in place around uh, transgenderism and you know um, uh, gender neutral toilets and all other bits and policies around. Again, making another appearance. Yeah, yeah. This is going back six or seven years. Well, a a person, a man, stood for election for the board of trustees for the school. Um, he was elected uh, when he was elected, he actually I think campaigned on removing those policies, saying that they were just wrong for kids, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. When he got elected to the Board of trustees, he continued his campaign and um, you know was quite vociferous by the sound of it. Uh, I, I think a parent or certainly someone in the community got upset about what he was doing and saying, and started calling them names, uh, used the word uh, transphobic, bigot, racist, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Well, this uh, board of trustee member took a defamation case against this individual uh, for using those words. Um, And one of the defences used was basically that um, this is a public office position and When you're speaking, uh, in Canada, there's a specific law, obviously, if you're speaking uh, up against someone who holds public office, you are kind of almost got an absolute defence, well, very close to an absolute defence for defamation for using freedom of expression terms like bigot and transphobe and whatever, whatever, and the Supreme Court of Canada agreed, and so it wasn't held to be discrimination um, or defamation, I should say. But interestingly, this board member... He got elected using that terminology and railing against it. When he was on his um, on, on the board, he continued using it uh, and continued railing against the policies and speaking out strongly. Stood for re-election the following three years and got re-elected. So it, it just shows that it is it is possible. Um, so that's that's out of the Supreme Court of Canada, and I and I suppose in, in one sense it's um, it's a little bit uh, pleasing that you know you can actually stand up and say, you're a transphobe, you're a bigot, you're whatever, whatever, and not held to be defamatory. That holds freedom of expression, I suppose, and political opinion and whatever else, that we should all try and not be too sensitive about uh, receiving, be on the receiving end of. Uh, On the other hand, I kind of question if the language had gone the other way uh, from the board member towards this member of the public or parent, um, how the case would have uh, unfolded.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like selective freedom of speech protection, um, and I suspect it was just because of the direction in which um, it was going. I do think um, you're right there, Nick. Uh, shoe on the other foot, uh, he uh, the public interest defence wouldn't have been upheld.
0: Yes. Yeah. Is it fair to say though, in, in in this sort of area, those words, those that name calling, can actually have Real consequences because you can be branded as a despicable human being by the use of those words in, in today's sort of environment.
2: You you know, they're
0: not just like, you know, the old sticks and stones words, you know, when you're calling someone phobic, I mean, if you look up the definition of that, you'll see what it means. You know, racist is thrown around a lot. The, the 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 worst bone that you can have pointed at you is to be accused of being a racist so you could you could uh, take your point Katie it's sort of selective um you could say that it's defaming
2: mm, it is absolutely de- it, it is defamation it is the core of defamation it were statements made publicly uh, which go to damage a person's reputation um you know that that is defamation um, and the fact that they've said well no it's not Defamation in this case, because there's this public interest um, freedom yeah. of speech um, uh, provision in Canada, and we're going to uphold that. Um, and and I, th- I find that quite incredible.
0: Do you think the institution sides with the comments? Maybe I know there's no way of knowing, but you wonder, mm-hmm. right?
2: He's voted back in, so it's um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, these, these things. Sorry, these things can work against. You in, in some respects, right? So we've seen, you know, in political circles in New Zealand, Winston Peters, um, you know, he kind of Garner's opinion on the back of this sort of um, stuff, uh, or support, I should say, uh, on the back of this sort of stuff. But um, the the other the other thing about it is, Kate, Kate is right that you know, um, historically, uh, words like that you'd you'd be held to be defamatory um, generally. Um, if it wasn't a public official i suppose um depending on the circumstances but i think we there, there could be an interesting shift in terms of defamation law here because those words now particularly racist i mean in new zealand you know um political woody jackson and others and john tamahiri and others they just they use that word every five seconds right so uh it's, it's losing its, its significance a bit but it just becomes overused, it's, you know, it doesn't really um, have the the power and the significance that it used to have because it's just part of everyday language. It's like Nazi, people. there's another one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Nazi, yeah. So, and what happened, so, and where I'm coming to with this is in the criminal law, you know, when I was in the police all those 25 or so years ago, you um, there, and they're still around in legislation now, but there was offences such as, you know, offensive language, offensive behaviour, insulting language, bits and pieces like that. And, um, you know, regularly we were called pigs, you know, um, F the pigs and bits and pieces. And um, we used to lock, lock people up on a, for offensive behaviour or insulting behaviour or language for those sorts of things if it went on uh, in, in the context um, but there's been a few court decisions now that have come out that have said, "Look, you guys need a thicker skin, right? You're in the police. You're going to get called these names all the time. You're even going to get spat at. Which you know, um, I think you know there was a case where um, a police officer was spat at and called a pig, and and the case was dismissed because it was not deemed to be uh, insulting or offensive to that to the police officer because it's kind of just part of your job. Just suck it up, sweetheart, right?" Uh, and so, uh, you know, if you apply that kind of analogy to the defamation type situation we've talked about here, it may well be that down the track being called you know racist or bigot or transphobe or something really loses its significance because because the people on that side of the political equation, they're using that language so often that it just becomes insignificant.
0: Might have already lost it.
1: Yeah, might have. yeah.
0: Okay. Anything more to say about the Canadian discrimination case before we move on? We done with that one. Sex in the City discrimination case from Australia. Oh yeah, what's that about?
1: Katie, do you want to go?
2: Yeah, this one's a bit of a hoot. Um, uh, a lawyer goes for a job interview um, at a very female-dominated firm in Sydney. And um, uh, doesn't get the job, um, and uh, takes a, di- a discrimination case um, against his um, against his interviewees um, or the firm that he was interviewed by that didn't give him the job on the basis that he was uh, discriminated against on the on the grounds of uh, sex, and um, he says that because his name was Dawn, he they thought. They likely thought that he was a um female and interviewed him on that basis and then didn't give him the job um because he turned out to be male.
0: Hang on, his name is Dawn? Yes. D A W N Dawn, as in Delta Dawn Correct uh, Helen Reddy.
2: <laughs> Correct. Um
0: Okay. Uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. So, Don do believed that he was invited for the interview because it was assumed he was female, and he was unhappy about the way the two uh, interview, female interviewers treated him during the interview. Um, he uh, felt offended, embarrassed, and humiliated after failing to secure a position with the firm. Um, and furthermore, he found both his interviewers so uh, sorry very attractive and beautiful. Therefore, the magnitude of the offense and humiliation caused by the discrimination of someone to whom I am attracted to is far more severe.
0: That's an interesting one.
2: Isn't it? So, if it was
0: the other way around, he wouldn't have felt that way. If (laughs) he didn't find them attractive, it would have been all right.
2: Yeah. Um, So, quite quite incredible. Um, He was unsuccessful, um, thank goodness. Uh, And He was, I think his claim was even held to be vexatious, which is really not great. Um, You know, a vexatious litigant um, uh, is one, you know, once you're tarred with that brush, it's very hard um, to take uh, further proceedings. Interestingly, he'd had had a similar discrimination case um, on different grounds, I think race um, before. Uh, So he was well-versed in getting a bit of a reputation uh, inside the relevant organisation, which is the Authority in Australia for Managing um, Discrimination.
0: So it sounds like Dawn was kind of fishing for an opportunity.
2: Yes. Um, that's a nice way to put it.
0: Can you imagine when he walked in the room, they, they were expecting Dawn and this guy walks in the room?
2: Well, I think his interview was by way of Zoom.
0: Oh, well, um, yeah. Of the stream, of yeah. But still the Zoom lights up and there's Dawn.
2: Yeah. Mm. Yep, no, but, but these days
1: it's, yeah, I mean, these days it's uh, very, very common for potential employers, you know, when you get an application, you, you're going to interview someone to actually check out the social media. You know, yeah, that's a thing, point. Kind of, kind of the first and, thing you do.
2: And uh, wouldn't he have signed off his email, he, who, uh, he, him?
0: <laughs> Good point, yeah. Okay. So, and th- there was form, he'd, he'd been involved in something like this previously. Is that what you just said?
2: Yes, but uh, I think it was a race—a claim of racism—to the Anti Discrimination Board.
0: Okay. Well, I wonder if you'll ever get a job.
2: Oh, yeah. Look, um, it takes all sorts to make the world go round, Paul.
0: Mm. Yeah, I've, I've heard someone say that before, mm. and it's true. It, it, that that kind of proves it. Uh, and, and if you get a certain reputation like that, that that's going to limit your opportunities anyway, isn't it?
2: Great.
1: He's obviously a fighter.
0: Dawn. <laughs> I wonder how he's actually not he on LinkedIn. Don-
2: he's not on LinkedIn either. I went looking okay. for him.
0: All right. And um, and the fact that if, if you're attractive, it's going to hurt him even more. Mm. Poor thing. All right. Mm. Okay. Conditional funding of sports clubs. What's all this about? You'd think... Um, It'd be sort of easier, no condition. Sports clubs are sports clubs. Well, they got a bar, they got a couple of loos, they've got places for people to stand around and give little speeches. End of story, right?
1: Uh yeah. So um that this is something that um I noticed in the in the media. Uh, and while not strictly legal, it still involves an issue of a contract between a sports club and the funding body, which in this particular instance was uh, Auckland Council uh, and so the Western Springs Football Club uh, need, badly needed some upgrade to its facilities um, and you know I've got a bit of a background with um, you know I was involved in a sports club uh, in Auckland I was the president of the club for a while and you know we have to raise money to keep the club going um, and there's really only three ways you do it you you know, Put your hand out to the members you do your sausage sizzles and other bits and peat raffles and bits and pieces you can apply for pokey grants through charitable trusts and others private organizations or you apply to the council or government even for public money um and we were only a very small sports club so we managed to get by on the smell of an oily rag but the on a sausage French sizzle club, yeah yeah it was yeah, it was more than a sausage sizzle actually yeah. And we might have put, even put some uh, vegan burgers on their patties, I think, just to keep everybody happy. Okay. Um, yeah, but but um, here the Western Springs Sports Club needed uh, half a million dollars virtually to upgrade its changing facilities, paint the club rooms, put, you know, change the bar around and, and put some carpet. And Relatively you know, half a million dollars of, of funding, a, a reasonably sized sports club, Western Springs Sports Club, been around for 40 years, 50 years or something. So um, applied to the council. The council in one of its grants um, decisions said, yep, yep, you can have this money, but it comes with conditions. And some of the conditions were that they introduced, the club introduces a gender equity um, policy so that the governance committees of the club are represented 50-50 between, well, gender equity, basically split division, I guess men and women, or maybe even uh, transgender, I don't know. Um, they were required to put that in place. They were required to have gender-neutral gen, gender toilets. Well, here um, we go, not again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it's and coming you up. Can, yeah, you can see where it's going. So, um, this is uh, interesting development, I think, because a lot of these, a lot of these sports clubs, um, as I say, it's, it's harder to get private money these days. Some of the the, you know the, the council and the government are trying to put a cap on the poking machine so the poking machine revenue for the TAB is down um the number of the poking machines are being reduced across Auckland so, uh, the the private um funding establishments just Sky City ASB charitable trust um and and others and there's about 30 of them uh, in Auckland um they just inundated with with you know in, in applications and they have quite strict criteria some of them too so um, some of them just won't fund, you know, this and won't fund that. So you really have to know, or you really have to, yeah, know what you're looking for, where to go to when you're looking for for private money as well. Um, and so there's only, you know, there's only so far money goes, um, and most of it comes back to putting a hand out to council or local boards at that level. And and this is where this is what's being directed now. That oh, you can have our money, but you've got to do this um so you know some of these clubs are going to be in a difficult position i expect like some of the schools that we just talked about before has it
0: always been that way i i suspect not is this like a recent thing
1: uh well um i was i was on a local board for two terms so i know a bit about um, receiving applications for funding and generally there is conditions applied to the to the funding if, if you give a grant um but they're, they're very, very basic. Most most of the ones that, you know, I guess I was involved in um, supplying a financial account for the next year, making sure that, you know, this happened or that happened or something like that, just because it's public money and you want to make sure that all the boxes are ticked. So having conditions attached to the grant or funding grant is not um, is not um, inexplicable, I suppose. Um quite normal, uh, but now now we've got you know, these sorts of conditions. So why the council sh- must or should or does direct that a sports club governance committee must contain certain quotas or certain types of people um, is, I think, that is, well, more than a stretch too far. It is completely um, um, appalling, in my view.
2: Well, it means that you're not necessarily getting the best person to do the job because you've got to tick boxes.
1: Exactly.
0: yeah, and, and is there any demand from the club, the actual club for these? well the club,
1: most of these clubs are that incorporated society, they're, they're governed by their constitution. So you know these clubs are run, the other thing about these clubs is that they are essentially most of them all run by volunteers, okay it, it, and, and you get a lot of volunteer fatigue with these sorts of clubs. Um, and volunteers' time is limited. You know, there's only 24 hours in a day. You've got to sleep for eight, or eight of it, and, and you work for some of the others. So time is very limited. Uh, these clubs are run by volunteers who do it for love uh, and for nothing else, and now they're being tasked with having to change constitutions, putting that constitutional change to a special general meeting on AGM, getting that change to put this condition in about certain quotas because it's what the council wants and blah, blah, And I can tell you, um, you're going to get a lot of volunteer fatigue of this sort of stuff. And a lot of volunteers are just going to say, "Bugger this! I, I, I'm just, I've just had enough of this rubbish." And um, it, it will affect. It, it definitely will affect the way some of these sports clubs um, are, are run and how they go in the future.
0: Mm. It's projecting again ideology into something that's seems to not need it. I mean, sports
1: clubs are sports clubs, right? <laughs> mm. Yeah, set. it should it should look. It should be none of the council's business how a private sports club is governed, what it's how it's made up, how the votes go, how the committees are run, blah, 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 blah. That's got nothing to do with Bolton Council or anybody else apart from that sports club itself.
0: Isn't that weaponizing the money?
2: It's making it conditional.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, it's hundred percent. And it's putting look, and as I said, it's um these sports clubs are going to be stuck between a rock and a hard place in the future, to be honest. Because as the private money gets harder to find, they have to go to the public purse, and these will be the types of conditions imposed in the contract. So, yeah, it's um, yeah. I'm, I'm just glad I'm out of my sports club. To be fair.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. All right. Anything more to say about that before we move
0: on to our last topic? And that is this. This sounds interesting. Uh, Black Power manslaughter appeal. Okay.
1: Yes, yeah, so I just read about this this morning and um, it, it involved, uh, this is a court of appeal um, decision by a Black Power chapter member in Whanganui appealing against his conviction for murder of a Mongrel mob member in Whanganui uh, some years ago. And the situation was that um, some Black Power members uh, visited this Mongrel mob member in his house with weapons, including um, firearms. Uh, They basically said, "Look, um, this is Black Power territory. Bugger off." Um, uh, uh, A fight ensued, and they shot him dead. This, the Black Power chapter president, was not in the house. He was not there at all. He was, in fact, the evidence of the trial was conclusive. He was not involved in the murder whatsoever. He was 150. He was seen about 100 to 150 meters away from the murder scene, so he was relatively present, but not at the murder scene. Um, The police gave evidence at the trial through an expert um, in... He was a police officer, but he was an expert in gang culture and gang organisational hierarchy. And this police officer said there's no way that this president would not have known about the uh, murder and potentially ordered the hit. Okay, there's no evidence of that, but the way that the gang or this gang works or gangs work, is that this is what would have happened. So even though he wasn't present, even though he was 150 metres away, even though he didn't fire the gun, even though you know um, there was no actual evidence linking him to that crime, crime scene, he must have known about it. Um, he must have kind of been involved in it at an organisational level. Therefore, he is a party to the offence of murder and he's guilty. Now, the High Court convicted him. He appealed that to the Court of Appeal. I think it's Court of Appeal. I don't think it's Supreme Court yet. And the Court of Appeal uh, upheld the conviction by, I think, by two to one. There was a dissenting judge. Uh, So it just raises, you know, this is um, an interesting development in my view in criminal law because the criminal law, generally, you have to be present at the scene of a crime and either help in some way or um, discourage you know, others from helping or aid aid in a bit or prevent others from helping in some way uh, by your physical action, uh, simply helping them. I guess you can actually be uh, found um, guilty for preparing to commit a crime, uh, but that's a separate offence to being a party to uh, a culpable murder. And this president of of, of the Black Power chapter um, was found guilty simply by um, association, basically. By and, geographical uh, location, but and by geographical location, and you know, so you might think that you have don't have much sympathy for Black Power, Mongrel Mob, and he deserves all he gets or whatever. But you've got to think of the wider issue here. Where does it put uh, leaders of organisations? Potentially, uh, are they liable for the actions of their members if someone can prove that at some stage they must have known about what went on because they are the leader of the organisation? But it
0: sounds like that proof wasn't there. That was an expert joining dots, um, which overrode the physical reality.
1: Yeah, and, and a police expert at that too. So not an independent expert called by the court, but uh, a police a police expert. So essentially a prosecution witness, um, but assisting the court, I suppose, with um, the evidence of gang culture. But an opinion. Enough to
0: override that principle, those principles.
2: Yeah, and I think that's an interesting thing because what's happening is, is when it comes to um, a criminal action, the um, the standard or the standard of proof is beyond reasonable doubt, um, as opposed to the civil standard. And the civil standard is on the balance of probabilities. And uh, you know, you would think that in this situation that the expert evidence would not be sufficient to. Um, get over that level that has to be achieved. Uh, you need something more than just an expert opinion saying this is how gangs gangs work, and you know he was in the vicinity, so or even if he wasn't in the vicinity, he would have still known about it.
0: Well, that's what uh, I was thinking, even if he wasn't there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They could use that um, you know that, that opinion could still carry weight. and then and then it doesn't win through an appeal, even though there was a dissenting judge.
2: Mm, it was really quite incredible. Um,
1: I just read about it this morning um, on, on a law society um, bulletin, and um, it, you know, I, yeah, I couldn't go into any more depth than that because I literally came across it an hour ago um, or so. But um, you know, I, I don't know. A- again, I don't know whether this um, the president of this Black Power chapter was a hundred metres away at McDonald's or whether he was hundred metres away in his car, you know, uh, on the phone, you know, to the other two offenders or you know, telling them what to do or whatever. Um, I haven't read enough into the facts, but um, it's certainly um, yeah eye-opening kind of. Um, and, and look, it's good to see that at least one Court of Appeal judge dissented and said, I, I think it's probably a stretch too far. Mm.
0: Could that go mm. further? Could that go to the Supreme Court? Is that a possibility?
2: He would have to seek leave to appeal. Um, I don't know that you have an appeal out of right.
1: It was manslaughter and not murder as well. Okay, So, yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see if it does go to Supreme Court, actually.
0: You'd be tempted to want to go all the way if you were representing him, wouldn't you?
2: Absolutely. <laughs> I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's, you- I, yeah, I agree. I think it's, well, you know, law, some law, look, lawyers, some, <laughs> hang on a second, uh, I'm kind of a bit of a type a person, so I would want to do it, right, regardless of what my client wanted, you know, because I just think well, it's just wrong and we just need to appeal this. But you're always at the beck and call of your client. You know, if the client's not interested, don't worry about it, um, then I suppose you've got to take um, take those instructions and not, not do anything about it. But uh, as, as I said, you know, this is um, – if if you've got to dismiss, I think, to an extent, the fact that it's a Black Power member, yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah mob mob. And, mob. and um, where does it leave other organisations? Uh, and, you know, we, we may not have experts in the police who are dealing with, uh, you know, the structures of other organisations in society apart from gangs. But, you know, is this kind of uh, a precedent for um, other organisations to be found potentially, you know, guilty of some criminal offence um, when, you know, they weren't, even present at, at what happened. Um, Though the location is suspicious, i got to say.
2: Well, it was a Black Power neighbourhood, wasn't it?
0: Okay,
1: well, there <laughs> you go, right, of course. If you remember, so so let's just um, continue that for a second. If you remember uh, some weeks ago, we discussed um, the uh, matter of Billy T Kahaka. Um, is that how you pronounce his name? I think Billy T Kahika. Anyway, of course, he went to jail for organising a protest during the COVID lockdowns him and one of his supporters, I think he served three months or four months or something. And we just discussed the absurdity of that. viz. other people who had strangled and beaten women who got home detention and whatever. But um, let's say in that situation, um, Billy and his associate were not present at the protest. Um, They were 200 metres away, locked down in their apartment. But, um, you know, Kind of knew about it and said, "Yeah, you're going. This is a good idea. Um, here's what you should be doing." Does that make? But that make him potentially culpable as well for planning it and organising it and whatever you know, or, or organising the offence that took place at the protest rather than the protest itself.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: such as an assault or a riot or something. You know, mm,
2: it's interesting. It makes it very uncertain, very hard to advise.
0: Mm. Interesting cases.
2: Interesting. No, indeed. no yeah.
1: neutral toilets involved in that one either. <laughs> no. But the criminal law uh, has never really prosecuted people for their thoughts, you see, and their ideas and, and whatever, and, and to some extent not planning either. Um, you have to go beyond a certain level of planning for the mm. criminal law to become involved. Um, mm. do, do you yeah. think we're seeing a bit of creep
0: in that direction?
2: Well, the interesting thing is is that we've got a situation, if you're guilty of murder, it means you've committed the mental intention to do it, and actually kill the person. Generally, for manslaughter, you've just committed the act. So here we've got a situation where he's not even committed the act. He's down the road 100 metres. Someone else has done it, but because of supposedly some mental element of his knowledge, he's therefore guilty. Um, it's uh, it's just such a mm. curious precedent uh, to see it.
1: Mm. I agree, yeah.
0: That's a good way of putting it. All right, we've come to the end of our list.
2: Not just, just one more. Oh, but wait, there's more. This is the surprise. Um, So uh, the COVID-19 Public Health Response Act 2020, its powers were supposed to wind up in May of this year. Um, That was extended, I think, out in November last year uh, to May of this year. Um, But no, just a few days ago, actually, I think a couple of weeks ago, I've only just seen it now, is um, the COVID-19 Amendment Act to the uh, rescue now extends uh, the expiry date for the COVID-19 Public Health Response Act 2020. Out until, drumroll please, 26 okay. November 2024. So I just, you know, this is just a sign of them not wanting to relinquish any power. And, you know, if COVID is... Endemic, if we want to even call that now, I think we're going to. You know, there's things popping up on the news telling me that I can cure COVID with garlic. So, I think we've probably relegated it to um, definitely a level. Did of you COVID. say
0: November 2024? Like
2: 26th of November 2024. So, so another eighteen November, or
1: so. November, November next year.
2: November next year, correct? Um, so that that uh, amendment was slid through, I think, on about 16th of May.
0: How could <laughs> What the hell is going on?
2: Look, um, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But, you know, you don't relinquish, supposedly don't relinquish any of it once you've you've got it. So it is, it's just incredible. Um, so I just thought I would share that uh, with you to finish off your, mon- um, your Wednesday morning. You've
1: ruined my day already.
2: Sorry.
1: <laughs> and there's another saying as well that, you know, power is never um, uh, uh, given, it's always taken. Right. So um, it's kind of up to people to take the power away. Ain't going to happen. And well, we've got an election this year, but yeah. I guess I don't know that. who voted. I don't know how the opposition voted on this. But, you know, the skeptic in me and the, and the suspicious kind of person in me thinks, you know, have got the World Health Organization now trying to put in pandemic treaties and, you know, um, vaccination passports and bits and pieces like that. Well, very convenient to have this legislation just carry on through that process. Great. And then
0: you look at the RFP for the disinformation project equivalent. You look at the new censorship regime. Uh, just coincidental, all this. Mm, it's timing, looking. eh? But all those instruments working together. Mm-hmm. Great. And I'm sure people will text and email their shock at that. Anyway, okay. All right. Well, always interesting. Never a dull moment in that law stuff. Mm. Um, we know that uh, for sure now. And that's our legal hub for this week. We'll do it all again next Wednesday, and uh, will you will you be back in the saddle then, Nick? Or is that a bit tight for you? It'll be no, out, uh, on the airport I'll at I'll Dubai
1: be, or something like that. Uh, well, I'm back on I'm back on Sunday, New Zealand time midday. So I'm back oh, on Tuesday in yep. my I would say comfortable North Shore home, but it's not going to be that comfortable. I understand it's it's about four degrees and blowing sideways wind and rain and. Uh, and I've just spent, you know, the last two weeks sitting, sitting by Paul, getting tan, drinking cocktails. So it's going to be a bit of a culture shock, but Ooh. hey, I'll do, any, I'll do anything for the team, Paul, anything for RCR.
0: Okay. Well, that's good to hear. All right. Thanks, guys, and we'll talk again next Wednesday.
2: Cool. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Nick. Thanks. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.